The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day. This is Simon Rose and I'm joined for The Bigger Picture today as every fortnight by Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. Uh, Mike, well... um, We've had elections. I can try to think how many elections we, we've actually spoken about in the past. There seems to be an awful lot. Um, but uh, uh, including, of course, a by-election, which perhaps was, I don't know, you might disagree, but might almost the most important part of the election night. It's, it's, last week was the biggest test of, the, uh, of, of, of our politics until the next general election, which could come as soon as 2023, but that's something we'll probably touch on in a later section what a night i mean we mentioned the hartlepool by-election there were elections for councils across england um two sets including those deferred from 2020 a slew of metro mayor elections and elections for police and crime commissioners and elections to the scottish and welsh parliaments as well so i think it's important to begin as you say with the hartlepool by-election result it was one of the first ones announced overnight and a Stunning reversal of fortunes for the Labour Party in its first test under Keir Starmer's leadership. Now, it's important to say that the makeup of the vote in Hartlepool in the last two out of the last three elections would have seen Labour lose had the Brexit Party and Tory Party votes combine. But the outcome of the election saw the Conservatives emerge with a seven and a half thousand majority pushing Labour very firmly into second place. Now, you can argue about why that's happened. You could say perhaps it's it to do with the vaccine bounds. Is it to do with the further collapse of the Red Wall? Was it to do with the fact that Labour selected a candidate in Dr Paul Williams, who was incredibly uh, problematic? Some people might say uh, had had some considerable uh, baggage in that area. The, uh, or people could argue it was to do with the popularity of the local uh, metro mayor for Tees Valley, Ben Hoochin, who was re-elected with 75% of the vote. Either way, we saw a seat that many had expected Labour to hold, and indeed those I spoke to locally uh, at the start of the campaign were expecting Labour to hold, go blue. So not a great start for Keir Starmer. I think, intriguingly, I actually think the result itself was not entirely Starmer's fault uh, but we'll touch on his reshuffle later and his response however was completely out of proportion so the by-election away was the headline result what was more interesting was the fact that we saw the Conservatives uh, Labour in yet another set of local elections results fail to break through now by-elections are always interesting because they're good snapshots of a political mood and it's always a good idea but remember firstly Turnout tends to be lower, but this was an impressive thing for the Conservatives to take the seat. It's only been the third time a government has gained a seat in a by-election since 1982 and the fourth time since the end of the Second World War. And so that is a considerable achievement for Boris Johnson and a considerable boon as well, because it's like, don't forget, there's plenty of stuff circling at Westminster about sleaze and allegations against the Conservatives. But I think this shows the government is going into its third year in office now. Uh, or it's it's <laughs> technically it's it's twelfth year in office because it's been mm, yeah, yeah. eleven years since David Cameron became prime minister. More on him later. With with a spring in its step, but it's also uh, undogged by allegations of sleaze and I won't say corruption, but stuff that has continually circulated around in Westminster. 
whereas Labour has is still th- uh, failing to cut through. And bear in mind that when the Tories came back into office 11 years ago, they were the party of inexperience. And now they've been, they're very much the party of government again, which for those of us who grew up with the, the Blair government, as I did, we were used to Labour as the party of government. Obviously, historically, Labour hasn't yes. been, but Labour being in power was the normal thing for us growing up and now we've got used to what is the fourth successive term for Tory government and could very well be heading for a fifth obviously we're still a way away from that but overall an impressive set of results overall for the Conservatives and gaining Hartlepool was really just the jewel in the crown. Um, We are going to have another by-election soon aren't we Batley and Spen? Yes and this is the one that I think is arguably going to be more interesting uh, for a couple of reasons. Firstly because the seat actually doesn't have the same degree of Brexit party vote there. And in fact, Labour just held it in the 2019 general election. So the seat's intriguing for a number of reasons. It was the seat of the late uh, um, Joe Cox, who was sadly murdered um, just under five years ago. Her sister is now actually running to be the Labour candidate in her stead. And I think she, she stands a very good chance of actually getting that seat. The other reason is that the incumbent MP Tracy Brabin was elected as the West of Yorkshire Metro Mayor and she leaves a slim majority. But I th- I think this is arguably a better test of Starmer's leadership here because it's a seat that Labour managed to hold, but it wasn't dependent upon a large Brexit party vote in that part of the world. And given the fact that the MPs in that seat have had an unusually high profile for the last three years, and certainly you've had the 2015 election, the 2016 by-election after Joe Cox's murder, the 2017 election, the 2019 election, and Labour's held the seats. So three tests of that under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. If Starmer doesn't hold Batley and Spen, then I'd argue he's in more trouble than if he was to hold Hartlepool, because the share of that vote, Hartlepool, was far more representative of a part of the country that felt abandoned by Labour long before Mr Corbyn mm. or Mr Starmer took office as well. The psychodrama the Labour Party, in my opinion, is largely a distraction at the moment, but I think we can discuss that more if Labour lose the Batley and Spen by-election. But that's the one I think to keep our eyes on. But still, losing Hartlepool did provoke some significant difficulties within Labour, which have significantly dented Starmer's reputation for competence. What I want to focus on, though, is the fact that the Conservatives made gained 13 councils, an extra 235 councillors. Bear in mind that this is for years on from the high water mark under Theresa May before she lost her majority in 2017 when Mr Corbyn failed to make cuts as well. The Labour lost control of eight councils including Durham but they did make significant gains in the Metro Mayor election. So Andy Burnham overwhelmingly re-elected in Greater Manchester, Tracy Braben as I said in West Yorkshire but Labour also gained the Cambridgeshire and Peterborough mayoralty and the West of England mayoralty. This, to me, points to a deeper realignment of politics. The traditional north-south divide is arguably breaking down, something that we saw in the 2017 election happening with Corbyn taking seats like Canterbury and Leamington Spa and Warwick. And now Labour are winning in areas more in southern England. And actually, Ed Davey, the Lib Dem leader, has coined an interesting phrase this week when he referred to the blue wall in the south. Could we be witnessing, could we be seeing a realignment of British politics where Labour becomes the party of the wealthier south and the Tories become the party of perhaps the poorer northern parts of the country as well? That might be happening. Yeah, intriguing, isn't it? Um do we know? Do we know why um, yet? I mean, I've seen some people talk about the you know, the the exodus from uh, London, which of course has been fairly um, Labour. We had Sadiq Khan uh, re-elected as the mayor of uh, London. 
Um, but it's quite intriguing, isn't it? It is. And I think the, the first thing to say is that Labour did hold on in London. Um, I think we have as the media to give a little bit of credit to the outcome of Sean Bailey's campaign. He did considerably better than many people expected him to. Many people predicted Sadiq Khan winning on first preference votes alone. In fact, he did have to go to a runoff in the capital. But Mr Khan was still uh, re-elected with 55% of the vote. Again, a uh, it was never really in any doubt, but he did secure uh, more impressive results than anyone since Ken Livingston in 2000. And uh, in 2000, when Mr Livingston was first elected. So L- London is still a Labour city. And the fact that... Um, Labour are winning there should come as no great surprise and I think actually arguably the Tories have uh, a, point, a point was made to me by a colleague earlier that actually people the Tories have uh, a lot of people in the media are overlooking the fact that Boris Johnson is a genuine vote winner because Johnson is the elections Johnson has fought so far as Conservative leader so yeah. um, the 2019 election and the 2021 uh, elections he's done very well in and he's also won two terms as London mayor. So this this reinforces this idea of despite the Johnson, the, the various problems of the Johnson personality, the Johnson brand, the Boris Johnson persona is a vote winner for the Conservatives, particularly in areas where they wouldn't otherwise have yeah. cut through. Now, obviously, that started under Brexit. We saw that movement of votes in the red wall seats. Uh, arguably in 2017, and it's been moving since before then, arguably accelerated by the referendum. But the Conservatives are in danger of neglecting London as well because they can find some... If Johnson could win that city twice and then win in the North, even though he is, as many people say, a posh old Etonian, it shows the Tories can actually win in London. I think they're in danger of perhaps giving up on the South, which may which brings me back to that warning of from Ed Davey about the so-called um, blue wall in the South, mm. that the Conservatives could be in danger of losing perhaps ground to the Lib Dems or other parties in their historic realignment. A hundred years ago in British politics, the Labour Party emerged as the second party at the expense of the Liberals over three general elections between 1922 and 1924. I think we're seeing a similar realignment now with Labour falling. What we haven't got is an obvious party from the left to overtake them as well. And I think arguably what we've seen, the big lesson from across the country is that incumbency held advantages. Labour re-elected in Wales with increased number of seats. Nicola Sturgeon holding her ground with her minority government in Scotland, keeping 64 seats there as well, showing the deadlock in that part of the country. The Metro Mayor elections in Sadiq Khan in London were in danger of the UK's politics moving towards a series of dominant one-party areas with the SNP in Scotland, Labour in the major cities mm. in the south, and the larger urban centres of the north, and the Tories holding sway over the crucial swing seats in the Westminster government as well. It's going to be a very interesting uh, few years, Simon. Goodness knows what it's going to look like 10 years from now. Um, thank you, Mike. As we've been talking about Hartlepool, of course, um, uh, why I want to recount one of my favourite anecdotes, probably completely apocryphal, but of course it was uh, Peter Mandelson's um, seat for um a long time, wasn't it? And it was yeah. said, and you probably tell me this is totally untrue, that Mandelson did the sort of, you know, let's go and show I'm a man of people thing when he was um, electioneering and went into a fish and chip shop, ordered the fish and chips and then saw the mushy peas and said, oh, I'll have some of that guacamole as well, please. I'm sad to say, actually, I think that was probably made up by John Prescott. That's what, certainly uh, what Mandelson what great, says as well. Great, great shame, but it is one of my favourite stories. Let's uh, change subject. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio.
so you mentioned earlier we're going to talk about um, uh, Keir Starmer's uh, reshuffle. So why don't we move on to that now? Yes. So one of the crucial things we have to talk about, I think, is the response which the loss of Hartlepool provoked within the Labour Party. Now, we have to say that, first of all, Keir Starmer has not handled this response well. The result would have been Labour's comms approach has been a mess ever since Corbyn took over, but I think there's been a lot. Of, it's been interesting this week watching the the fallout from the results. So what happened is the Hartlepool by-election result was announced on Friday morning. The Conservatives, as I said, made that third uh, seat gain since 1982, which is a very exception given how many by-elections have, have happened in that time. What happened next, though, was that was at odds with Keir Starmer's initial approach had been before the election result, then Labour had sought to play down uh, expectations, had said he he said he would take full ownership of the result. What transpired over the next couple of days, the Friday and the Saturday, was that the blame was being very heavily laid at the door of uh, the one person in the shadow cabinet who Keir Starmer cannot rid himself of, which is his deputy, Angela Rayner who held the positions of Labour Party chair and Labour's election coordinator. So she's voted on by the party? She's voted in by the party, so she doesn't have to hold a shadow cabinet post, but it looks very odd if the elected deputy leader of the Labour Party doesn't hold a shadow cabinet role. And she's also the person that Starmer can't really get rid of as well. And under Jeremy Corbyn, there was a similar attempt, uh, bad relationships between the deputy leader and the leader of the Labour Party, and nothing new in its recent history. Gordon Brown had troubled relationships with Harriet Harman during his time, didn't really accord her the respect she felt she was deserved. Tom Watson and Jeremy Corbyn, there's a whole, there's books about that, and I re- re- really recommend the paperback version of Left Out is out today. I'm not on commission, but it is an excellent read. And, of course, now, so Rayner and Starmer are both nominally have common ground. They served in Jeremy Corbyn's shadow cabinet, a shadow uh, Brexit secretary in his case, and shadow education secretary in her case. Uh, both shared in the psychodrama around Brexit as well, both pretty much consistently advocated for a similar standpoint, although Starmer took a more vocal line on Remain. Rayner's very popular with the party grassroots, so she, 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 but she's also close to Rebecca Long-Bailey. So although she's interpreted as being on the soft left of the party, she was somebody who was seen as, as acceptable to work with both the Corbynistas and Starmer. And for the last year or so, publicly, they've enjoyed a good relationship. Behind the scenes, however, tensions have clearly simmered and so Starmer tried to effectively sack her on the Saturday with the blame for the um, Labour election result being laid at her door specifically Hartlepool even though uh, Ms Rayner had apparently very little to do with the timing of the campaign but as the person nominally in charge of Labour's overall election strategy they could have focused on the, the gains they had made but though they instead chose to talk about Hartlepool instead it then emerged the sort of thing that I think many of us had hoped had been solely consigned to the Corbyn leadership, that range of incompetence. But to be honest, it just goes to show, and I have to say, as somebody who's been a consistent critic of the Corbyn leadership and of the, the Corbynistas in general, actually, this showed a degree of how this sort of internecine warfare just runs beyond simply changing the leader of the Labour Party and is not confined to one wing as well. We had a protracted reshuffle over about... 18 to 24 hours of Keir Starmer trying to fill various shadow cabinet positions and ending up uh, reshuffling the three most senior women within his team, demoting shadow Chancellor Annalise Dodds and making her chair of a much 
delayed Labour Party policy review, because don't forget, under Labour's constitution, that 2019 manifesto still stands. That's the free broadband and free university education and all that. Uh, promoting, the good move was promoting Rachel Reeves, who was Shadow Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, shadowing Michael Gove to Shadow Chancellor, former Bank of England economist, very good on detail, very efficient operator, and somebody who served in the Shadow Cabinet before under Ed Miliband under the very tricky role of Shadow Welfare Secretary. And then giving Angela Rayner seemingly every title under the sun. So she is now, and bear with me on this, mm. Deputy Leader of the Labour Party, Shadow First Secretary of State, read Deputy Prime Minister, Shadow uh, Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster, so she shadows Michael Gove, and Shadow Secretary of State for the Future of Work. Now, try putting that on any sort of TV <laughs> caption. It would probably fill up the lower half of the screen. So in this internal battle, Angela Rayner came out on top, and it really, ultimately, there are very few people who could say that this whole episode hasn't weakened Keir Starmer's position considerably. So what what are his prospects? I mean, it's probably to say, and maybe maybe the by election in Batley and Spen will be, as you say, quite important for um, his security. But how long before you know the fighting behind the scenes breaks out into into Nissan warfare? In the well, I'd argue it already has broken out to into Nissan warfare. We've seen both Tony Blair and Jeremy Corbyn in the media this week vying for the soul of the Labour Party. Um, Starmer's critics from the left are delighted and i think justifiably so because he's given them a very rough ride over the last year and mm. don't forget jeremy corbyn is still uh suspended as a labor mp even though he's a member of the labor party so there is a it, I, I i i i feel i have to actually say that actually these problems weren't just confined i mean we could rehearse the various failings of the corbyn leadership but really we have to talk about starmer for now and also say that these um, but also acknowledge that this is a deeper thing than just personalities. The Labour Party has never arguably been in, in, been in the worst state. And I spent a good chunk of the weekend with friends talking about, the, and as did the media, about the party's existential problem it faces here. Because the fact that it is in the last 10 years, in the last 15 years since it last won the election in 2005, it has lost Middle England in 2010 when the Tories yeah. uh, came back to power in the minority government, but still managed to hold on to its heartlands. By 2015, it had lost Scotland, and by 2019, it had lost good chunks of the Red Wall. Now, this did not begin with any particular Labour leader. It's arguing going on for 20 years. But the fact is that 16 years ago, Labour was able to put together a majority of 66 seats. Now they have less than 200 MPs. And it's all very well for leaders to point out, like Jeremy Corbyn, to say, oh, we've got 600,000 party members, we've got 10 million votes. The geography matters in this country. And if Labour isn't winning in seats like Nuneaton, where I'm from, where the Tories gained all 10 council seats off Labour, giving them a majority on the council, if you're not winning in Nuneaton, you're not winning in Harlow, you're not going to win power in this country as well. Labour can realign, but the question is, which way do they go? There are some deep questions that Starmer has to answer, but also those around him as well. It's a similar trend across Europe, though, isn't it? The conventional the conventional left of centre parties seem to be getting displaced in quite a few countries. Yes, and this isn't a problem that's just confined, I would say, to the to the UK. The reason it matters a bit more in the UK than elsewhere, I would say. So yes, we can argue that centre-left parties have struggled, but we've also had things like the Syriza Party in Greece as well gain power. So there's an international element too, and I think certainly that since the financial crisis, social democratic politics, as embodied, broadly speaking, by the centre-left, has struggled, hence why we saw the Labour tack so hard to the left under um, the Corbyn 
years and even under Ed Miliband. The other thing to consider as well is that in this country, and I mentioned again, a, a return to one party rule, if we don't have an opposition that can be seen to win, yeah. the Conservatives by default are going to obtain a fifth term in office, which is not a term in office. And this is not a party political point based on the question of this is rather based on competence and personalities and democratic renewal, which is an important principle. And the fact that our legislators and our ministers are part of the same body and therefore do a lot of work mm. is not good for democracy in this country. No, so I think Tories... even Margaret Thatcher said that, didn't she? Yeah, the Tories shouldn't yeah. get a fifth term in office because of the weakness of the opposition. If they were the fifth term, like Angela Merkel did, based off consensus and strength of personality and competence, that's a different matter. But the fact is that the UK is basically devolving into a series of political fiefdoms that arguably you haven't seen, probably in a slightly flippant way for me to describe this, since the, you know, we had Anglo-Saxon kingdoms springing up across the country and local, war and local warlords. Inevitably, talk is now turning to look for those who might be able to lead Labour back. Following his absolutely stonking success in Manchester, Andy Burnham is once again for the third time potentially in the running. Don't And we must remember, by the way, that the mayoral terms will run out in 2024 as well, which could potentially align with the next general election. So there's nothing to stop Sadiq Khan or Andy Burnham coming back to Westminster in a by-election and trying to run to be leader of the party then as well. However, Starmer has a trickier thing now because the next general election is now looking likely to be in 2023 rather than 2024, which gives Labour just under two years to conduct a policy review, which Annalise Dodds is now chairing. We could be less than a thousand. We are less than a thousand days away from the general election. We could be as few as seven hundred or so. That doesn't give Starmer a lot of time to make his mark. So we're out of lockdowns by then. Uh, Mike, time for us to change the subject once more. Sharing ideas about money. This is Share Radio. Listening to the bigger picture on Share Radio, I am Simon Rose in conversation with political commentator Mike Indian, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. So we've had a Queen's speech, not quite like the usual one. No, I, I mean, not quite the usual one for several reasons. And I think to make a non-political point for a moment here, it was a strangely moving occasion to see Her Majesty arrive at Parliament, not only in reduced um, ceremonial circumstances, but also for the first time without Prince Philip being there either in private or in public as well. Now, we've had for a few years Prince Charles going with her, but it was. We were, I think it, there's always no, a temptation to read too much into the Queen's reactions, but you can imagine she was probably reflecting on the time she'd sat there with him and she's done it, you know, he was at every step opening from 1952 till comparatively recently. So I think from that side, it, it gave me, it, I found that strangely moving, to be honest. Uh, but an interesting legislative programme unveiled by the government as well. And uh, centrepiece of it was definitely uh, much anticipated reform to the skills system. So introducing a new flexible lifelong entitlement to access loans for better study, which seems to be the first real plank in the government's levelling up agenda that we've seen so far. And we are getting a document fleshing this out mm -hmm. later in the year. A lot is focused on the... Um, the lack of social care reform in this speech. And there has been a green paper on social care kicking round DHSC and the cabinet office since 2017, 2018. Given the fact that we're still coming out of the pandemic, I question whether this year was the right year to do it. But given the fact that Johnson could potentially be going to the polls in a year early because he is scrapping the fixed term parliaments act, taking back 
the power to declare elections, which he will get when he wishes to, and also shortening the length of the campaign from seven weeks to potentially four or five, because don't forget the Tories have uh, got badly burned by the long campaign in 2017. In addition, there are also controversial proposals about voter ID in there as well. There's still enough to concern people. But apart from that, there isn't a lot in there to symbolise a great deal of um, dynamic Mm. uh, aspiration by the government, particularly given that this was something that could have been uh, used to potentially shape a more interventionist approach to the state, which Theresa May articulated as well. Now, Johnson's government has walked a line in this. They have, it has effectively a populist nationalist leader, someone who's wrapped himself in the flag and has used spending to uh, drive to targeted areas, as we've seen during the coronavirus pandemic and the £400 billion deficit we've got in the UK debt is now over £2 trillion. But a factor right Chancellor and Rishi Sunak as well. So at the same time, we talked about the fact that the UK is going to enjoy the strongest year of growth, I think in about 70, 80 years, strongest peacetime growth we've ever seen this year. But I think that's still in the short term. We need to be thinking two, three, four years ahead here. Once the economy surged back, once the sort of springs uncalled, how are we going to be performing then? Are we going to be returning to those sort of one, two percent rates of anemic growth that we had? Bear in mind that the decade before that, the decade of the Blair premiership was four or five percent growth. But the UK economy was then bigger than China's. Now, we're not expected to overtake China again. But what can the government do to drive more investment into underinvested regions, which is meant to be? the backbone of its levelling up agenda. We talk about a levelling up agenda as if it's a thing. It isn't, but we've seen the first bits of it now. But if Johnson is going to the polls in 2023 rather than 2024, and that year difference does count, because don't forget the longer um, he's also announced that there will be a public inquiry into coronavirus, Mm. that inquiry will probably still be going on and won't have reported before the election. So the Tories could potentially go and get a poll and I know that they're cynical enough to be able to do that to try and maximise their own advantage. After all, it took 10 years for the Chilcot inquiry to come out. And at this point, unfortunately, Mike Indian suffered a uh, power cut, one of the disadvantages, perhaps, of working from home, as a result of which we had to bring our interview uh, to a conclusion. So that's it for the bigger picture for this week. Uh, I was in conversation with Mike Indian, political commentator, author of the Groucho Tendency blog. The Bigger Picture, going behind the headlines of the biggest economic and political stories of the day.